Welcome to Australian Hiker, your online hiking resource. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 160 of the Australian Hiker podcast. Now, Australian Hiker is all about walking, and when John O'Lenin, author of the book Perfect Motion, contacted me a few months ago to talk about doing a review of his book, it only made sense to review not only the book, but also to chat with him on the podcast. This book resonated with me in so many ways, uh, particularly in the way that I feel when doing my big hikes. The book Perfect Motion was the culmination of his journey that was set in motion with the death of his younger brother Gareth that eventually resulted in a 2,700km solo track across the Himalayas. In this week's episode, we talk with Jono about the impacts of walking and find out more about his amazing background, including his Himalayan trip, and discuss his book Perfect Motion. We hope you enjoy. All right, Jono, thank you for taking your time to talk to us, Australian Hiker. Oh, well, thanks for asking me, and I love the website. You know, I go there all the time to look for the, look for the trail reviews especially. Thank you very much. A pleasure. Okay, now, before we talk about the book Perfect Motion, I'd just like to get some background about you. Um, and your book outlines a pretty interesting life, both from a, uh, a sporting perspective. Tell us about your sporting background and how you got into walking. <laughs> Well, I've been walking since I was around one, <laughs> yeah. as, as most of us have. Um, but, uh, you know, I moved to Canada when I was 10. I was born in Belfast in Northern Ireland, and my family moved away from the troubles there. I uh, went to Canada. I became really interested in the outdoors, especially in the mountains. I was very fortunate to grow up on Vancouver Island, so mountains and ocean right there. And then I got very involved in cross-country ski racing, and that consumed about 10 years of my life and uh, became quite good at it. I, I competed at the World Cup and the World Championships. You know, I skied to the top 40 in the world. So, yeah, and that uh, that background in cross-country ski racing a lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of men and women who are involved in cross-country ski racing, because you live and work in the mountains, they work in, they work in industries uh, around that. Uh, so, you know, I became a trekking guide and a mountain guide and uh, ended up in the Himalayas. Um, my, my work background was actually in forestry. So I spent uh, 18 years working in forestry in Canada. So, but I was very fortunate in that I only actually had to work three or four months a year, and that gave me enough money for the for the for the next eight months. And I usually spent that eight months in my twenties. I was ski racing, so I spent eight months a year in Europe, uh, training and ski racing. And then after that, I moved to the ended up going to the Himalayas. Uh, I spent eight years in the Himalayas, walking because that's really what I love to do. And then eventually when I finished that, I ended up working for Médecins Sans Frontières, which is, uh, many of the listeners will know, as a humanitarian relief organization, uh, Nobel Prize winning humanitarian relief organization. 
And I worked for them initially as a logistician and then as a, a project manager and a country manager in in Africa and in Asia, uh, setting up uh, medical projects in war zones. And I made a bit of a leap there. People are probably asking, how did you go from being uh, a guide and a forester to managing medical projects? And actually, there's a lot of there's a lot of skills that are involved in managing remote forestry projects or mining projects uh, that relate to how you organize uh, hospitals and health centers in really remote areas of the developing world. And then I was very fortunate while I was working um, with uh, MSF in the Himalayas. I met my wife there. That was actually the second time that I met her, but that's a whole other story that we won't get into. Uh, I met my wife there and uh, we decided very quickly that it was time to have a family. And here I am in Australia. Lucky me. All right. I mean, you sound like you sort of came to uh, the, the the hiking or the walking side of things um, from a, an alpine perspective, at least initially. Um, how you know you 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 said you walked through the Himalayas. How did how did hiking come about? I mean, you say you like hiking, but what is it about hiking, and what sort of hiking do you like doing? Well, um, you know, when I was. Uh when I was really little, I remember when we lived in Belfast, you know, every Saturday my mom used to take us down to the local library. And at the local library, we would choose our books for the week, and I would usually look for uh, a couple of kids' mysteries. And then for some reason I gravitated towards the the outdoors section, the mountaineering section. And in Britain in the 1970s and 1980s, there was lots of those books and uh, mountain climbers were, you know, they were rock star status, a lot of them. So I became very fascinated with these books and, you know, I'd open them up and I'd see these men and women in these bright puffy jackets up in the Himalayas, you know, blue sky up above and this titanium white snow all around and you know, and they were on top of the world. And that was completely the opposite of my experience at that time in Northern Ireland, where it was just gray and raining all the time. And there was bombs going off and the army was in the streets and something lodged in my brain there. And I became interested in, in Alpine areas. And when we moved to Canada, I spent a lot of time in the Alpine, uh, hiking, trekking, climbing. And then when I had the chance, as I said, I moved to the Himalayas and ended up walking there for for a long time now, why I was attracted specifically to walking, uh, you know, I talk a lot about why that might be in in perfect motion in the book, but um, I think a lot of it was uh, it's it's just the natural thing for people to do. You know, when I walk, there's a peace that comes over me. You know, there's a sense of uh, um, a sense of oneness, a sense of of uh, just a sense of happiness, and I think that a lot of that actually has to do with the with the sense of control that you actually have when you're walking. When you're walking, you know, you're in you're in control of your immediate environment. You're active in the environment, and that's something that something that people forget about when they're walking. Okay, uh, now I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment, but you, you're talking about the Himalayas. Tell us a bit about the Himalayan walk you did, because that was actually quite a, a, a pretty big undertaking. 
Yeah, <laughs> that was a pretty big undertaking. <laughs> so that was when I was in my 30s. And, um, you know, really uh, one of the big reasons, well, probably the biggest reason that I went to the Himalayas um, was because my younger brother, Gareth, died in a tragic boating accident in Canada. Uh, he was he was a rower for the University of Victoria rowing team. They were out training on the lake one day, and a huge, massive storm came out of the Pacific and hit this small lake that they were rowing on. There was six-foot waves there, and the train eight that they were in got smashed in two, and uh, the eight lads and the cocks were hanging on for dear life. And unfortunately, my brother got hypothermia, and and uh he died and you know when i when i lost gareth uh you know a huge piece of my family jigsaw puzzle disappeared that i had no replacement for and uh you know really i went into a tail dive for a couple of years after that and um those dreams came back that i'd had as a kid looking at the himalayas and i kind of decided well that's that's the place to go, and I'm I'm talking about this, of course, in retrospect. But at the time, I don't think that I really realized that. Um, you know, I went there because it was something cool to do on a superficial level. I went there because it was something cool to do, and a lot of people were going there at that time, and it sounded like sounded like something fun to do. But there was obviously something more deeply subconscious going on. So I ended up in the Himalayas, um, and uh, as I said, I read lots of those books as a kid, you know, The Mountaineers, Doug Scott, and all that crew, and I thought, after I'd been in the Himalayas for a few years, uh, you know, I spoke Hindi, I knew the area very well, and I decided something cool to do would be uh, to actually um, to actually link up these different cultures that I'd come across throughout the Himalayas. Um, so the Muslim areas of Pakistan, the Buddhist areas in the Indian Himalaya, and then the, the Hindu pilgrimage sites in the, in the West Central Himalaya. And so I decided that I would undertake a walk to link up all of those different areas. And, you know, Again, I was a young guy. I thought that was pretty cool. I'd be the first person to walk solo from Pakistan to Nepal. And, uh, you know, when you're young and full of energy, and <laughs> then, you know, looking back on it now, of course, I think it's completely mad. But at the time, it seemed like a logical thing to do. And I was very confident that I could do it. What sort of distance did you end up doing on that trip? Well, uh I figure it was around 2,700 kilometers. Um, you know, as the crow flies, of course, it's probably only a little over 1,000 or 1,200, somewhere in there. But, you know, it's up and down and all around. And, uh, yeah, it took me almost five months. And um, I have to say in those days, because I'd spent a decade cross-country ski racing, I was... I was in phenomenal shape. You know, I, I thought nothing of, you know, walking 50 kilometers, uh, you know, at 4,000 meters with a 25 kilo pack. I mean, that didn't even phase me. And now when I, <laughs> now when I think of that, I'm yes. thinking, wow. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, now for a trip that sort of size in a an area which is reasonably remote, what was the planning process like? Did you just, just did you just say, look, I'm going, and you you were winging it, or was there a bit no. of fair bit of planning involved? No, yeah, Tim, that's um, that's interesting because it's so different than what you would do now, of course, because um, this is this is twenty years ago, more than twenty years ago. Um, so there was no GPS, you know, there was no, uh, there was no data. Um, and the first step was really to think about a route because it, it hadn't been done before. Uh, and again, it's in an area that is, um, disputed, uh, between Pakistan and India and India and China. So these are, these are border areas that are, are um, you know there's a really uh, built up army presence there on on all sides of those borders. So I had to be very careful what I did, but the first step was to figure out where I was going to go, and that's not easy because the Indian government and the Pakistani government don't issue maps to those areas. So <laughs> what do you do? Well, it turns out that uh, the U.S. Army has managed to get a large scale. Uh, map that area. Well, actually, they used the old um, British maps from prior to 1947. And of course, the topography is still the same. But of course, the population is different and the road systems are different. So what I did is that I actually ordered a whole set of maps for the entire Western Himalayas from, uh, from the States. And then I just laid them all out and uh, using that combined with all kinds of expedition reports and uh, previous trekking guides from the area, I kind of linked up. Uh, I linked up a trail that that went from all the way from northern Pakistan to the border with Nepal. Um, now I should say that you know the Himalayas is in areas extremely remote, but then in other areas, especially on the south side of the Himalayas, there's a lot of people there. Yep. So it's not like walking in Australia or or in Canada, for example. Okay, uh, and what did you do in relation to logistics? I mean, you know, you obviously can't carry everything at one go. You're going to have to resupply with food. You're going to have to top up on with water on a regular basis, uh, and you also need to sort accommodation out. What did you? What were your logistical processes like? Um, uh, uh, definitely back then, I probably wasn't as strong a planner as you, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say that one of the absolute highlights of that walk was uh, was the people, were the people across the Himalayas from Pakistan to India to Nepal, compassionate and generous to a fault. Um, but saying that, uh, you know, I of course I had to have food, I had to have accommodation. Um, but every, every uh, on average, about every three days, I would be in a village. And in the village, you could buy rice and dal. And that's what I lived on, <laughs> rice and dal. Yep. Uh, a, a lot of people who've trekked in the Himalayas know that that is just standard fare. You can you can cook it. You cook it in a pressure cooker, um, and you buy a pressure cooker in India, and you can get a nice small one about a liter size, one point five liters, and you just <laughs> basically all you do is you put a cup of rice in there, uh, and then half a cup of dal on top of that. 
put butter and water and salt on top of that, and then you put it on the stove. And then you listen to your beautiful kerosene stove puffing away until all of a sudden the pressure cooker just starts steaming away and then you take it off and you let it sit for five minutes and it's done. That's it. That's dinner. And the leftovers were eaten for breakfast. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so and the other, <laughs> the other interesting thing um, is uh, cooking wise, um, generally you, you would use a kerosene cooker there because you can always buy kerosene. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the more refined fuels you can't find, um, and, uh, of course, uh, pressurized stoves, butane, for example, you won't find. So you can buy kerosene in the village. Again, you buy an Indian kerosene stove, which is the equivalent of the 1940s, 50s Swedish version. It's an old Optimus or Svea stove, same system, pressurized kerosene inside in a small jet. The key with that is that the Indian kerosene is very dirty, so the jet will frequently clog. And that's why you don't, if you get a self-cleaning kerosene stove from here, it will get jammed and it won't work. So you have, you can buy pins to clean the jet in any village in India. So the, the key, what I'm saying here is that you have to go local. And, um, you know, you're, you're not going to get... Uh, beautiful food that you might get on a, on an organized trek. Uh, and, um, again, you know, you're, you're working out your accommodation day to day. I would say about, about, uh, probably 40% of the time I would stay in people's houses. And again, it gets back to the, the compassion that, that everybody showed me there, but I would show up in a village and sit down on somebody's step, middle of nowhere, no roads around Within five minutes, people were offering me a cup of tea. And within 10 minutes, people would be offering me a place to stay, you know, in their barn or in their kitchen or wherever. Did you have a tent with you for the times that you weren't, weren't able to do that? Yeah, I did. I had a little uh, two-man mountain tent, uh, a Vaudet tunnel tent, and it was, an, it was an excellent tent, yeah. Okay. What about water? Were you filtering your water or were you... Were you uh just drinking as was. No, definitely not. No, uh, but actually filters um, really weren't that great then. Uh, and I wasn't going to be able to get replacement filters. So I actually um, actually used iodine. Yeah. So I would just drop iodine into my water bottle every morning and drink that during the day. Yeah, I was going to say, it's sort of, uh, um, I know through a lot of the Asian areas, through the Himalayas, the, the recommendation is always to treat the water somehow. Oh, uh, yeah. And it's, uh, um, uh, yeah, yeah I've, I've seen so many people get sick through a lot of those areas when they don't, so. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Now, um, in your book, I suppose that leads us on to your book, Perfect Motion. What prompted you to write this book? Were you always a writer or is this just something that came to you while you were, you were doing the Himalayan trip? Well, I, I mean, I've always been a storyteller, right? Uh, I grew up, as I said, in Northern Ireland and I can remember as a kid sitting around the living room while my dad and my uncles and my aunts and my mum sat around and had a dram of whiskey or two and told stories, and that's, that's what we did, and that's what I've loved ever since. You know, I can listen to someone who has a good yarn any day of the week. So, and I've always been, I've always been a big reader, um, and I've always loved writing. I mean, 
uh, full disclosure, I have a PhD in writing, so, so I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. Uh, and this is my third book. So I've, um, you know, I've written a lot. And my day job is as a curator at the National Museum of Australia. And so I write all day. So, I mean, I am, I, stories are a big focus of my life. I'm very interested in the theory and the practice of stories. Uh, the reason that I, I wrote Perfect Motion was because of my understanding, my developing understanding of walking as more than just physical exercise. And that really came about because I would say that the catalyst for that was the, the long walk in the Himalayas. Because, as I mentioned, uh, my brother Gareth had died a couple of years before I undertook that walk, and I was in a, not in a great headspace. And something about the walk really helped me. You know, I finished that walk, I felt stronger, not just physically, but emotionally and psychologically. And when I was trying to write the book about that walk, which is called Into the Heart of the Himalayas, um, it took me 10 years to write that book. And uh, a lot of it was about blockages that I felt about what were what was this story really all about. And eventually, of course, I understood that it was about my brother and that the walk had done something, had been a catalytic moment for me. And so that led me to investigate what was it about, what is the relationship between walking and thinking and walking and stories and walking and creativity. And um, so that was that was the thesis that I started out with. What is the relationship between walking and thinking? I must admit, so the book the book's actually called Perfect Motion: How Walking Makes Us Wiser. Uh, and if you go to the Australian Hiker website, we will be releasing or have released a book review on this one as well. And you can find out more information on the book. But I suppose. The, 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 the second half of the, the title, How Walking Makes Us Wiser, what is it about walking um, that, that provides some sort of impact on us? What is it that makes us wiser? Well, I guess we have to define wisdom first of all, Tim. And wisdom to me, um, you know, is not uh, your knowledge about uh, about percentages or, you know, insurance rates or uh you know how to how to hammer a particular nail on a particular particular piece of wood i believe that our wisdom is actually related to creativity it's how we adapt to new to new situations and environments and um traditionally uh walking has actually helped us do that because uh if we step back if we go way back 2.5 million years, well, let's go right back 4 million years ago. 4 million years ago, one of our earliest ancestors stood up, probably to grab a piece of golden fruit, and then stepped two or three steps on to, to grab another. And really, that was an act of creativity. It was an act of innovative thinking. They had done something that none of their colleagues had ever done, and what it, had, what it had created was the ability to access a whole other strata of resources that were up in the trees. Over the next million, uh, million and a half years, uh, species homo started walking more and more. 
and uh, a lot of that was a lot of that was uh, initiated by climate change also uh, reduction in forest cover increase in savanna type landscapes and then something really interesting happened about 2.5 million years ago and that was that was that we got an appetite for protein and uh, of course the most concentrated forms of protein are animals and the only the only uh, physical advantage that um, human beings have over other animals, four-legged animals especially, is our heat dissipation. So we can actually outwalk just about any other animal on the globe if you give us time. And so human beings realized that, and we started developing long-range hunting techniques. Now, long-range hunting techniques are really incredible when you start to think about it because you have a group of people who are tracking an animal for hours, days on end, for tens of kilometers, um, you know, maybe up to 100, 150 kilometers. And all the time they are in a form of communication with each other, verbal and nonverbal. Well, in those days it would have been nonverbal. And at the same time, they have to predict where that animal will be in five minutes, 30 minutes, in an hour. So that, in a lot of ways, is the start of predictive thinking. And predictive thinking is is something really incredible because that's, of course, we use it every day. That's how we plan. That's how we create our futures. And that's something really special about human beings is the idea that we create our own futures. And that idea of creating a future, uh, creating a plan to get to that point is intrinsically related to walking. And so when we start to walk, when we stand up, get out of the seat and start walking, we actually start to think differently. And that type of thinking, that type of thinking that's initiated through that forward motion, through the physicality of it, is is actually what I believe makes us wiser, makes us creative, makes us resilient, makes us makes us the most developed evolutionarily species in the world. Now, I found um, much of what you talked about in the book resonated with the way I feel after a long, or after enduring a long-distance hike, um, and I've never been able to quantify it in the past. So from my perspective, I, I almost find it a bit of a luxury that you can walk for days or weeks on end. Quite often, as I said, solo hiking for me is very different than, than walking with somebody else where you're talking. Um, and I think one of the things I came across was that supposedly the average human has between ten and 60,000 thoughts a day and that no one's ever been able to seem to agree on what the exact number is. But that's an awful lot. And I, and I find on my long-distance hikes, I, there's, a, there's a pattern, at least from my perspective. I start mm-hmm. thinking about things that have been, you know, what's been going on in my life the last few days and the last few weeks and what's, what's happening now when I'm starting the hike. And then I go into solving the problems of the world uh, and I start thinking about things that you just don't have the time or the luxury to do uh, in normal day-to-day life. What is it, what is it, why is walking, why does walking allow you to do this and is it necessary to be solo or can you be doing this as a, as a group or as, a, as in more than one person? Mm, yeah. So two points there. Um, First of all, you know, how does, how does walking help us in that problem solving? And again, this is what homo sapiens are, right? 
we are problem solvers. And actually, I describe I describe Homo sapiens as bipedal problem solvers. If people ask me, what, what is when you take us right down to our roots, what are we? We are bipedal problem solvers. The two of them are connected. They're interconnected. So what actually happens when you get up out of the chair and you start for a walk? Well, there's, there's physiology and there's neurology and there's psychology involved in this. You get up out of the chair, you start walking, a different flow of neurotransmitters starts. And that includes uh, dopamine and serotonin. These are, these are neurotransmitters that start to loosen your thinking up and create a sense of space. That's really important when we talk about spaciousness. If you think about it, when you're under stress, you become, your thinking becomes compressed. You start to think about one particular little tiny problem that might be, that might be bugging you in a work environment or in a home environment. Um, and to break out of that, we have to do something different. Walking is the catalyst for that. The neurotransmitters start flowing that create that sense of space. Then after about 10-15 minutes, our neuroelectrical levels start to drop. And they can drop, they drop down. After about 15 minutes, they start to drop down into the same neuroelectrical area that we're in when we're meditating. Again, we're creating that sense of mental space, psychological space, breaking out of that nugget of compressed thinking. And then after after about uh, 30 or 40 minutes, then really amazing stuff starts to happen. We start to, our prefrontal cortexes, which are the part of the brain that make us do stuff. Uh, they're the part of the brain that takes all of this information from the other parts of the brain, brings it together, and makes a decision about how we will act in the world. And it's important to remember that when you define yourself as a person, how do you define yourself? You know, I mean, I can say that I'm, I'm Jono, you know, I'm a tall guy, I got light colored hair, I got light colored eyes, uh, you know, I got some facial hair. I've just described about 20 million people right there. How do you actually describe yourself? Who are you? Subconsciously, the way that you do it is through the accumulation of your actions. If you think about it, I'm the guy, for example, who, you know, I put the coffee on the stovetop, and I always turn the handle to the left. You know, when I'm hanging out the laundry, subconsciously, I always hang up the socks together. My wife never does that. She hates when I do that. But actually, those are the little defining subconscious moments, subconscious decisions that we make every day. And we make millions of them every day, repeated over and over and over again. And the accumulation of that bulk of ideas is really... The, the definition of the framework of who we are. So when, you're, when your prefrontal cortex starts to slow down and those, those subconscious decisions that the prefrontal cortex is just constantly making for you, when they start to fall apart, then you start to lose your sense of self. And actually that's really important from a creativity, innovative thinking perspective. Because if you want, if you want to solve the problems of the world... Uh, and if you want to solve the problems in your relationship, and if you want to solve the problems at work, and if you want to solve the problems around parenting, the best thing to do is to forget who you are and look at it from a fresh perspective. Again, that's what walking does for us. You know, a big question is, why did that happen? 
and we can go back again 2.5 million years and look at uh, look at group hunting techniques again. When the hunters were out there, men and women, they had to track that animal, and that animal represented livelihood, security, and longevity for them. It was extremely important that they get that animal. And to, to track the animal, to catch the animal, they had to, they had to understand the animal. And the best hunters, and I know this sounds weird, the best hunters are actually the most creative people. They're the people who are able to lose themselves and actually become the animal. You know, if you can if you can think exactly like an animal, if you can become that antelope, then you know where it's going to go. But to do that, you have to lose yourself. So over millions of years, uh, evolutionary selection has chosen the people who are the best at creative thinking, the best at losing themselves, the best at problem solving, and we are the result. And the way that you activate that is by going for a walk. It changes the way you think. Now, the second point was, do you have to be alone? Um, now, I should say that that from a innovative thinking, problem-solving perspective, walking is very good for, for uh, discursive thinking. It's good for getting the big picture, you know? Uh, it's good for getting all kinds of ideas that you could use to approach and solve a problem. Um, but then there's there's convergent thinking, which is actually taking those ideas and narrowing it down into the one that will actually work. And walking isn't always the best for that. So you have you have walking that can take you into that that uh, that discursive type of thought, and I believe that that has to happen alone because you have to have the space. Uh, to let those thoughts flow. Now, lots of, I mean, but I always say that, you know, for this to happen, you got to get out there and start walking. So the key, the key is to get out the door and start walking. And if that means that you have to call up a friend or that you have a walking group, then yeah, for sure, go for it. That's really, really important. Um, but, you know, if you want to have some really innovative thoughts, then I would tell your friends, you know, uh, just keep in mind that, you know, after 20 or 30 minutes, I might slow down and just back off and I might not be as receptive to the conversation as things are going on. Now, the other side of that is convergent thinking. And convergent thinking actually um, can work good in that group think environment. Um, so again, walking in a group and, you know, I've written pieces for, for the Australian, for example, on this, on walking meetings. And walking meetings are an extremely powerful way to, to generate ideas and generate solutions. Uh, and, you know, of course, you know, we talk about walking meetings in, the, in business these days, but actually walking meetings have been happening for as long as human beings have been walking, you know, me and my wife, we walk all the time, you know. I mean, families that walk together seem to be families that work together a lot better. I must admit, I mean, you've raised a couple of points through there. As, as I said, I find that when I do my solo hikes, particularly my my big solo hikes, I that's when, for me, all my thinking tends to happen. Um, you know, ideas for articles for the podcast or podcast topics always happen when I'm out walking, and it's not because I see something that says, Oh look, there's a there's a, an animal. I'll write. I'll do an article on it. It's just that for whatever reason, my thought processes think, oh, this is this is what I need to do. So I sort of uh, I will often 
Um, I tend to use a phone and I'll send myself an email with just as a reminder to say, do this or remember to remember that. Otherwise, yeah. you know, an hour or two later, I've forgotten what it was that I uh, was thinking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's, that's a good point, Tim. Um, you know, anybody who's, who's going out there uh, walking and, you know, thinking about thinking while you're walking, it's a good idea to have a piece of little notepad or your phone just jot some ideas around because your thoughts are going to fly. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I, I tell people this all the time, right? And as soon as I start talking about this, people, everybody is like, oh, yeah, that, that happens to me all the time, but I hadn't thought about it. And I'm like, well, you know, those are actually your purest thoughts. And, you know, you should you should either try and remember them or jot them down or send yourself a note. I have a little um, I have a little practice that I do. You know, if I think and I will say that 90 percent of the ideas that went into perfect motion happened either when I was walking or running. I mean, it is it is such a powerful tool when you think about it like that. And when I have a really good idea when I'm out for a walk or run, I'll actually repeat it at least three times. I'll be like, oh, that's a great idea. I've got to write that down. And then I'll repeat it three times, and then it will come back to me at the end there. I found that when I was doing my university degree, exactly the same thing would happen. And, it's, you know, again, I'd, I'd have to stop whatever I was doing and send myself an email just as a, a prompt and as a reminder. Um. Taking it on from there, one of the things, particularly in the um, the, the US long distance hiking scene, where people are doing the you know the big long trails, and, e- and even I found, find this in Australia, the the whole concept of post trail blues, where you've been mm. walking for a number of weeks or a number of months, and all of a sudden you finish, you stop, and whatever you've been doing for the last X number of weeks or months is no longer there. Uh, and the and the the concept in the states is called post trail blues. Is that a thing? And and what actually is it? Oh yeah, it, it definitely is a thing. And this relates back to a point that you made earlier, Tim, about how when you're doing a long distance walk here in Australia, you know you have you have so many ideas, and you're constantly jotting them down and sending yourself notes. So what's going on there, of course, is that you have all of those um, psychological and neurological and physiological benefits that I was talking about, but of course it's blown out completely because you're doing this day after day after day. And on top of that, it's not like you're going for a day walk and you come back home and you got to make dinner and you got to help the kids with the homework and you got to think about what you're doing the next day for work. If you're on a long walk for, you know, a week or two weeks or a month, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about, okay, uh, I'm going to find somewhere to camp. I put up my tent, I'm making my dinner and then I'm going to bed. That's it. It is... I really found this, especially on the trek in the Himalayas, it was the simplest my life has ever been. And there's a purity about that, that generates a purity of thought. And on top of that, there's also the idea of control. I talked a little bit earlier about how when you get up out of the chair, the first thing that happens is that you become active in the environment. You're not a passive observer anymore. You've become active. And when you're on the trail for a multi-day or a multi-week walk, again, that is expanded because you have everything on your back. You've got your house on your back. You know, you've got your bedroom. You've got your kitchen. You've got, uh, you know, you've got the toilet in there. 
And so you, you really control that immediate environment. You know where you're going. You know, you've got the map there. Um, and it's funny because that, it almost sounds counterintuitive because when, when people talk about going for a long distance walk, of course, there's a lot of planning involved. And when you're talking about with your friends, they might say, wow, that sounds crazy. That, that could actually be really dangerous. I remember, you know, a few people, a few people when I was uh, planning on doing the walk through the Himalayas, a few people actually offered me guns. And I thought, having spent a lot of time there, I knew that that was absolutely the worst thing I could do. You know, you show up in a village in Pakistan or Northern India with a gun hanging off your pack and there, no one's going to offer you a cup of tea. I can tell you that they're going to usher you out of the village. Yeah. So the point here is that actually it may seem from the outside that this is a really dangerous activity, but actually when you're in the moment, when you're in the walk, you're actually in probably one of the most controlled environments that you could actually ever be in in your life. And when you have that type of control over your environment, your, your thoughts can actually really expand. You know, your thoughts are not limited because they're not, they're not you know, constantly thinking about, again, what, do I, what kind of homework do I have to help with the kids? So we're in control during the walk. And then all of a sudden you've been walking, uh, you know, Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachian Trail or uh, uh, Bimbalum Trail in WA. And all of a sudden you stop. And what happens? Well, you go back home and everybody's super excited to see you. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, geez, I got to get back to work. Uh, you know, I got to clean up the garden. I mean, there's all this stuff to do around the house. And all of a sudden that expansive thinking that you've been engaging in for weeks on end and the joy of letting your body and your mind move freely is taken away and you're compressed and you're brought back into that role of the normal life, the normal life that's built up around you for, for, for years and years. And, you know, I'm talking, it sounds negative the way I'm saying this, because over time, of course, it disappears. You know, we, we come back to that normal. To me, the key then, and people have asked me about this, well, you know, that, that sense of freedom that you had in that long walk, like how do, you, how do you refine that? And of course, the easiest way that we can refine that is just by going for a walk. You know, make sure that you're incorporating walking into your, your everyday life. Make it a priority. And, you know, again, like yourself, Tim, you know, you can plan for that next long walk and it's something to look forward to because, uh, as we know, these long walks can become addictive. Yeah, yeah. Now, one, one comment I would make here, and I'm not, again, I'm not quite sure if it's just me or it's everybody here. Um, one thing I find when I do my long solo walks is I pretty much go into autopilot. Um, I am... Within my own head, uh, I'm not really paying attention to the surrounding landscape. I'm walking through the landscape. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at it, but it's 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 probably only a peripheral thing for me. And this is where people say, "Oh, it's it's about the journey." And for me, it's I have this argument with my wife. For me, it quite often it's the destination. The journey is somewhere is <laughs> is that you is a mechanism to get there, and. 
and and I will, as I said, I'll go into autopilot, uh, and my I've, I've I've got enough of my brain focused on you know making sure I'm not stepping off a, a cliff or treading on a snake or I'm, I'm traveling in the right direction, but a lot of my thought is or my brain is focused inwards rather than what I'm actually doing at the time. Is that a normal thing or is that just me by the sound of it? Well, that's me too. <laughs> but interestingly, uh, you were talking about your wife. My wife is the same, you know. For me, for me again, yeah, the, the, the destination is the, is the goal, is the point, uh, the journey is the mechanism to get there. But we have to remember that while we're in this journey, you know, we're, we're having this wonderful experience this wonderful psychological experience because, uh, because again, that sense of freedom, that sense of mental freedom that we get during the walk. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I admit too that sometimes I will walk past a flower or walk past an incredible peak and maybe have not seen it. And my wife will say, didn't you just see that? Did you miss that waterfall? Uh, and I am more than happy for her to say, look at that, or one of my kids to say, look at that, Dad, and then I'll be there with them. But uh, I, just, I just love that, that sense of spaciousness that walking gives to me. And um, it's, it, for me, that's, that's part of the addiction of walking is that, is that sense of spaciousness that I get while I'm putting one foot in front of the other. All right, now, one final question. Um, I mean, you, do you still walk? Uh, and if so, what sort of walking uh, are, you, are you doing mainly these days? Oh, yeah, no, I walk every day. Um, I'm very fortunate living here in Canberra that we have a nature reserve right out the back of our house. And uh, every morning I go out there for a run. Uh, and most evenings I go out there for a walk. Um, lots of times with my kids. Um my kids, I'm very excited because I think my younger son is kind of, he's kind of getting into hiking and backpacking and these ideas. So I'm actually quite excited this summer. I think I'm going to be able to go backpacking with him for the first time. I mean, we've been, we've done a lot of walking with them in Australia and in the Himalayas in Nepal, but I'm quite excited for us to go for a multi-day walk together because I... Because I want to share this with with him. I mean, uh, as I mentioned, I I met my wife in the Himalayas. She's done a lot of trekking there. And so we want to be able to share this with our kids. So we've been talking with John O'Lanine about his book, Perfect Motion, How Walking Makes Us Wiser, uh, and the impacts and benefits that walking has on us. John thank you for your time. Oh, Tim, it was a great pleasure. It was good fun. Okay, so that was our interview with Jono Lenin, author of Perfect Motion. Um, as, as we said, or as I said during the episode, um, this really resonated with me, probably more so than with Jill by the sound of it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, for me, I had always um, enjoyed walking. I always liked being out, out in the bush. I particularly liked being by myself, and I could never quite put a finger on it or justify quite why it was that I felt that way. And you know, and in talking to Jono and reading the book Perfect Motion, uh, it, it all came together and made sense. In talking to him about his hiking background, you know, really it was driven by the love of books and reading about adventure as a young kid. Uh, and I think that sort of um, uh, 
put him in a situation where he wanted to replicate that as he had the opportunity and as he got older himself. Um, doing a 2,700-kilometre walk uh, through the Himalayas um, is probably one of the, the, the last unique sort of things that you can still do these days. I mean, there have been people that are doing and have done longer walks than that, um, but going through an area where there's uh, political disputes and sometimes military disputes over borders um, was you know, it, it's something that you really uh, would have to think very carefully about. Uh, and you know, and this given that this was done in days when uh, there were no GPS available, uh, and even now um, you can't actually take a GPS into China, so which includes Tibet. Uh, so you know, you are really based on paper-based maps. Yeah, I thought it was interesting when he said that he um, got hold of all the maps he could and spread them out, and <laughs> basically joined a, what it sounded like, joined them up and. Uh, headed on his way, um, but you know the really lovely thing is the the friendliness and the generosity of all the people that he um, met along the way. Um, and it sounded like, I mean, it was a very uh, perhaps cathartic exercise, um, but it was also very um, reaffirming and uh, almost zen-like and. He, he certainly has a very zen-like voice, you know, he does. It's very calming and very soothing. Uh, I think he also has the look to go with it as well, so. Oh, <laughs> we might not go there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it was interesting, uh, you know, the, the background behind you know, why he actually uh, did this journey, uh, and again, through personal loss, uh, and, you uh, he was also honest and said now uh, that this he thought this this would be a cool thing to do, uh, and yeah, you know, I agree. I think uh, being able to do a trip like that would be pretty amazing. Um, you definitely would want to be happy with a limited diet between rice and dal, and then you eat the leftovers for breakfast the next day. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, one thing I did find Jill and I uh, did a trip through uh, Bhutan in two thousand and twelve. Um, and talking to our guide, we, you know, and we, we passed some of the locals, and you know, and he was telling us the trip that we were taking, um, you know, eight nine days to do. Uh, the locals were doing this; they'd leave home at three o'clock in the morning, travel to where they were going, and be back at home by the end of the day, having done forty or fifty kilometres. And these guys were moving pretty quickly as well. Um, so it's yeah, it's it's all relative. You know, things we do for enjoyment, people actually do for, as part of their normal life. Yeah, I mean that was the other thing that came out around when we uh, started to talk about the walking. Um, it's what everybody does, or at least certainly the vast majority of people do, and it's not special. Um, Talking about logistics, so apart from, as you said, uh, you know, no GPS and having to work through maps, uh, accommodation, you know, the, he said that the biggest highlight for him was the people. Uh, and obviously the scenery would have been pretty amazing as well. But, you know, he was saying he'd go through and sit down on a step and people are just asking to stay or offer him um, uh, some, something to drink or something to eat. So he was saying that in 40% of the cases... Uh, or of his overnight stays, uh, he was able to stay somewhere with the locals. 
And it did sound as if he, he, he went very much with the flow and, and I did laugh when he, he said that he wasn't as strong a planner as you, Tim. <laughs> I'm not sure that uh, that's a possibility that anybody could be as strong as a planner as you, but, you know, there's probably someone out there. <laughs> um, now, in relation to his book Perfect Motion, Jono has produced a, uh, a number of books and written a number of articles. Um I have got another one of Jono's books that I'll be reviewing over the next four to six weeks. Uh, but in this case here, we're talking about his book, Perfect Motion. Now, Perfect Motion uh, is a book that was written about um, the impact uh, of walking on us. Uh, and uh, we started off talking about uh, how he came across the idea. And he, he mentioned that he's always a big reader uh, he is a writer. This was this was his third book, uh, and stories were being a part of his life. And it was written in a manner that uh, walking is more than just exercise. Um, and, and he really did put across the point that there is a relationship between walking and thinking. And and certainly, I agree from my perspective. Doing long distance hikes, um, it is a luxury, uh, and it's it's not for everybody. Not everyone likes to have that solitude. Um, but having the luxury to be able to really think, and I mean think deeply, is something we don't often get these days because we're so often focused on the minutiae of day-to-day life and the technology and all the problems at work that we tend to have. Well, there's definitely something in here, and I know that uh, you know when Tim starts to withdraw and clam up a little bit, um, uh, I, I sense that there's a bit of an issue, and I say we're going to go for a walk, we get probably, I don't know, five metres outside the house and suddenly he's talking at me, <laughs> but he hasn't hasn't spoken in days. Um, and we are problem solving and we're finding out what's going on and, and uh, there is a sense of, uh, I guess, working through things. Um, and I, I used to laugh a little bit and say, you know, it's because Tim's feet are connected to his tongue or something like that. But there's definitely something in here, so it, it, it definitely is worth exploring and worth getting to the book and, uh, you know, having a good look at what's um, what's been put out there and, and what it means for you. And as Jono did say, you know, walking really is, is physiology, neurology and psychology. Um, you know, we go through and start walking. It does impact on our thought processes. It, it, it loosens us up and we now have space to think. Uh, you know, and he did point out that in normal day-to-day life, we tend to live under a certain degree of stress. We're thinking about paying the bills, what our next thing to do at work, what we have to do around the house. Uh, and it's not until we get an opportunity to get a bit of creative space and get out and about uh, that we start getting that creative thought processes uh, really developing. I did like that idea of it's about forgetting who you are. Yeah, and I think, as I said, I think... For me, I I have found on all my hikes, uh, even when uh, I've been hiking with Jill or hiking with others, um, you know, you get you get into the zone. I suppose is the best way to call it. Uh, and I will go through a typical set of thought processes on every walk. Usually, it's around thinking about what I've been doing the last couple of weeks and all the issues around work and home. Uh, and that lasts for a short period. And then I go into starting to, to solve the problems of the world. 
uh, and it really is a is a a process that I go through and, and a habit that I tend to 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 do. And Jono did say that is this is something that he also does as well. Uh, and he he did say that his wife um, is a bit like Jill. That uh, you know, Jill Jill and and it sounds like Jono's wife is it's about the journey. Uh, for Jono and I, it's more about the destination, and the uh, the journey is more about the process of getting there. I'm not sure it's about the process of getting there, and that's probably not what how I would put it. It's about enjoying uh, the moment. Um, though I do find sometimes Tim. My thought processes go to, how did I let him convince me to do this again? <laughs> um, one thing he was saying that you know walking is good for the big picture stuff, uh, conversion thinking. He talks about you know that, that walking alone is not necessarily the best option for that, but certainly for the big picture stuff. And, and as I said, from my perspective, just about all the creative ideas that I, I ever have are. Uh, done because I'm either walking or exercising uh, and my brain can go into a different sort of thought process. So you know, it, as I said, if you've never done a longer hike, longer than you know, just a day or two, um, it's something that's it's worthwhile thinking about. Um, we talked about the post-trail blues and this is something that's often me- mentioned in the US long distance hiking circuit. Uh, and again, he did say that it is something that does exist. Um, you know, when you've been hiking for a, a number of days or weeks uh, and then you come back to the real world and all of a sudden you're having to start to think about going back to work, you know, doing the gardening, doing work around the home, uh, working a, an, into normal life, uh, you, you feel that or you lose that sense of freedom. I think there's something in there about uh, the people that you're now with when you come back uh, haven't lived that experience and so there isn't a point of reference and it can be quite isolating I, I think um, and they're already in the in the routine of things um, and you know you're kind of trying to fit back into or slot back into your space uh, that was left but you're not quite the same uh, as you were uh, when you left. So you don't necessarily fit or it takes you a bit more time to fit back in. Okay, so we hope you've enjoyed this interview with John O'Lanine, author of Perfect Motion. As mentioned, we will be reviewing another one of John O's books over the next four to six weeks. Um, and really, if you have if you are interested in why you like hiking uh, and what the the neurological, physiological and psychological processes behind it are. This book, even though it's written from an academic sense, it's written in a way that it's quite an enjoyable read. It's not a, a science-based book that, that, that comes across as a textbook. Uh, it's put into real-life situations uh, and you know, it will really be something that most people will, will, will enjoy the read. Okay, that's all for this week's episode. Bye for now. And bye from me. I just found that this book resonated. Okay, so we hope you've enjoyed the interview with John O'Lin. Okay, that's all for this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed. That's all for me. That's all for this week's episode. Bye for me.
<laughs> I've gone back. <laughs> All right. Bye f- don't you do bye for no, now? Yeah. And I do bye from me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, that's all for this. Es- <laughs> <laughs> I got to go to bed at some point, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>